Welcome to the 440th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Kimberly Bissell and Ji-Young Lee to talk about their new research assessing COVID-19 vaccine misinformation interventions among rural, suburban, and urban residents. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch, and you can always watch live on Twitter by following at US of Disaster. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Please help spread the word around COVID calls and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, but don't wait too long. We're wrapping up COVID calls on March 16th, so please do send your suggestions now. Plenty of time to have more conversations. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is... San Antonio lung doctor Nasir Syed sacrificed his life fighting COVID-19. This was written by Lindsay Carnett and appeared March 15th, 2021 in the San Antonio Report. Dr. Nasir Syed was a frontline physician in the pandemic, a pulmonologist treating people severely ill from COVID-19. In August of 2021, he contracted the disease himself. Initially admitted to Resolute Health Hospital, Syed was transferred to Methodist Hospital in the South Texas Medical Center before being flown to Dallas in search of a lung transplant, people close to Syed said. On some days, his condition would improve, and on others, it deteriorated. On Monday, March 1st, 2021, the 61-year-old physician and leader in the local Muslim community died of complications from COVID-19. He was working hard on both fronts, making sure that people don't get COVID at mosque and in treating COVID-19 patients, said Dr. Amir Esan, a friend of Syed's. It was so unfortunate being a lung doctor that he himself fell victim to COVID in such a bad way. Syed was known for being humble and focused, a devout Muslim, family man, and community-oriented San Antonian, those close to him said. I ask everyone to remember my dad, Syed's 26-year-old son, Owais said. He was advocating for everyone to take this pandemic very seriously. He sacrificed his life for that. Syed practiced medicine for more than 20 years and will be remembered for how well he cared for each of his patients, said colleague and friend Dr. Muhammad Talib. I think the main thing he will be remembered for is how compassionate he was, Talib said. He was always available for any person. Born in Pakistan, Syed completed his undergraduate studies in the United Kingdom before returning home for medical school. Following his time in South Asia, Syed went on to do his residency in internal medicine at Lankanau Medical Center in Pennsylvania. He completed a fellowship in pulmonology at Hahnemann University Hospital through Drexel University in Philadelphia. Syed practiced medicine in Wisconsin for two years before he moved to Texas in 2003 with his wife and their two children. They made San Antonio their home in 2006. He was very involved in San Antonio's Muslim community and served as the chairman of the board of the Muslim Children Education and Civic Center for three years prior to his death. Syed served as an interfaith chaplain in several local hospitals as well. 
Resolute Health Hospital Chaplain and Director of Pastoral Care, Jeremy Roy, said he got to know Syed very well during their time together in New Braunfels, Texas. Syed was like a father figure to many of the nurses and staff members, he said. There was a strength about him, but he was very lovable, Roy said. You could say it this way. He was kind of a lovable grump. He'd grump around the unit, but everyone, everybody loved him. When helping someone at the end of their life, Syed was always steadfast in his faith and served as a calming presence to the patient and their loved ones, Mr. Roy said. The way he practiced medicine related to the nurses and to all of us in other positions, he really approached it like it was, I would say, a calling, Roy said. He was a good, good guy. City Councilman Manny Palaez said he was heartbroken to hear of Syed's death. He got to know him well due to their frequent interactions within District 8 in San Antonio. My family has the largest concentration of my district, he said, has the largest concentration of Muslim families in San Antonio because we have the largest mosque in town. So I've spent time with their community. And through that time, I got to know the leadership and board, Peleas said. Dr. Nasir Syed was very active and within the local chapter of the Association of Physicians of Pakistani Descent of North America, he was active. Layaz said he will remember Dr. Syed for starting a free health clinic that was open to everyone, Muslim or not, who needed aid. Layaz added that Syed was tireless in his work to help the San Antonio community. The fact Syed died of the very disease he'd been treating for months and particularly is particularly tragic, Layaz said. The irony should not escape anyone that he's a pulmonologist and that he lost his life to COVID-19. Somehow this governor, he's referring to the governor of Texas, believes it's smarter to go with this movement of anti-intellectualism to buy into conspiracy theories than to be concerned about our healthcare workers. Khalib said Dr. Syed took stringent measures to protect himself and family from contracting the virus, but still dedicated himself to his work. His family members, they never had it. And he was not one who was going to public places, he said. He was so cautious, he would change his clothes in the garage and then take a shower before going inside. Syed is survived by his five brothers, his son, Awais, his daughter, Asma, and wife, Tazim. Awais Syed is a medical resident through the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and Asma Syed is a first-year medical student at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. His daughter said her father was a kind, dedicated man who inspired her and her brother to pursue medicine. Azeen Syed said her late husband was a devoted spouse and father who always made time for his family and his community. He was a frontline fighter and died while serving people, she said. That is how we will remember him always, as someone who gave away his life while curing and caring for others. The obituary of Dr. Nasir Syed who died a year ago in San Antonio, Texas, from COVID-19. This obituary was brought to my attention by the Faces of COVID Twitter site. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guests. Kim Bissell is the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. She's also the Director of the College's Research Institute, 
the Institute for Communication and Information Research. She's done research in health and sports communication for more than 20 years and has received external funding for her work in health disparities in children. Much of her research examines the social effects of media specific to health outcomes in children. My second guest is Jiung Lee. Jiung Lee is an assistant professor at the University of Alabama Department of Journalism and Creative Media. Her research is at the heart of emerging media effects, including artificial intelligence and augmented reality on persuasion communication. She studies human-computer interaction in the context of medical and risk misinformation, how new media affects polarization, and how media literacy interventions should be designed to engage the public in accurate information about health. Her work has appeared in several top communication journals, including Media Psychology, Health Communication, and Journal of Applied Communication Research. Jiung Lee and Kim Bissell, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Oh, I've really been looking forward to talking with you about this new research. Let me start the way that I generally do before we get into that, just to find out where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation looks like there. Kim, can I start with you on that? Yeah, sure can. Um, we are in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, home to the University of Alabama. And education, um, like many other places around the country, has had its um, ups and downs, it's had its peaks with the different variants. Um, before the vaccinations became readily available, um, you know, we're on a university campus, <laughs> so you've got a lot of students living in small, small spaces. So as different variants um, kind of um, were floating around the country, you would see those same um, bumps or spikes. In fall of 2020, there was a uh, massive spike here on campus. But again, it wasn't unlike any other university campus in the United States. Um, in Alabama, we fall a little bit behind the national curve on that. But um, we've seen them all right now. Fingers crossed, we're in a pretty good place. Um, we're still having faculty and students testing positive for the Omicron variant, but it's not like it was a month ago or six weeks ago. The students there have been back on campus since fall of 2020? Yes. So in um, in limited capacities, when everything said in spring of 2020, everyone went virtual. Many of the students went home because UA said there would be no return to in-person learning. Um, fall was on very much like a hybrid schedule, completely virtual with a few in-person because at that time they were practicing social distancing. So if you had a room capacity of 150, you could only have 50. So there were some faculty members teaching in person, some students in person, most of us were virtual. And then it's kind of gradually opened up from there. Jiang, just to come to you, did you wanna add anything about the experience of COVID there in Tuscaloosa? Yeah, I mean, I think Kim explained pretty good job in explaining our situation here in Tuscaloosa. Um, I have also wanted to just, you know, add a little bit that many students and faculty members have, um, you know, had a kind of challenging time during the COVID pandemic, um, you know, situation like other people have done so far because um, not only physically, like many students I see in my class have struggled with their um, mental, you know, um, illness a little bit. I don't want to say like illness, but they def definitely have some kind of depression level. So, um, 
this semester, like I was so glad to have in-person classes again. Um, and students have told me, you know, several times that how they were excited and how they were feeling energetic, um, you know, after they come to the campus, like back in the campus again. Jiang, let me just stay with you for a second. I've been asking guests um, if they would share a memory of this COVID period, and it's kind of an impossible task. There's so many, but I wonder if there's something that really stands in for you that you really associate with this time dealing with this pandemic. Um, and are, are you asking about the personal, like a personal, like a personal experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely. I was also the one who I can say who was struggled with like depression level, um, you know, high depression level a little bit. Because anyway, I feel like I'm isolated. Um, you know, um, because I had to work all the things in my home or alone in my office. Um, there was basically no way that I can have a kind of you know engaging conversation with other faculty members, my colleagues, and students. I really enjoyed that kind of vibe because I really enjoyed like just, you know, accidentally meeting each other in the hallways in our, um, you know, office and, you know, just hang out all together. But uh, there, those all the situations that I had dreamed of was just gone since the pandemic. So uh, I can see that several faculty members, my colleagues and students were coming back and forth in my office these days, but still is kind of limited. So I wish just pandemic is just gone away um, now and that, you know, we all hope to get back to our normal lives these days. Thanks for that. And Kim, let me just ask you the same question. If there's, you know, something that you really associate with this pandemic time personally. Well, um, I do. I've started the last two semesters with COVID and um, you know, when we started to go into lockdown in 2020, I took everything very, very seriously, didn't interact with other people. I'm immunocompromised. I'm a very ill parent and didn't want to do anything to potentially put either, you know, me, anyone else at risk. And I had to do an in-person event the start of the fall semester. I was exposed to covid and the Delta variant was very, very, very ill for six weeks, um, and you know had all the all the all the side effects that you could think of. And then I started to get better, and then started the spring semester testing positive for Omicron. So you know, as I've I've seen it kind of through the lens of what we hear from media. I've seen it through other um, you know friends and colleagues and students narratives and, and their stories about it and I kept thinking but I'm doing all the right things and I was but it didn't it didn't matter in my case so you know as Byung had referenced earlier it takes a toll not only physically but mentally and emotionally and you know through all of that I was still teaching in person and having to be present for students and and do my job and you know, it gave me the perspective of what so many other people around the world are having to do. You know, if you're a parent or whatever else, you have to you have to hold it together. Um, yeah. And at times I didn't, but I certainly tried. Well, thank you for, I'm, I'm glad you're okay. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that, that experience and, and, and that stress and, and, and we'll come back to that, I think, in the context of this research that you've done. 
Um, I want to make sure also, Kim, I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Can you pronounce it for me? Bissell, like the vacuum. Bissell. Okay. All right. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yep. Um, so just to remind folks that you are listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Kim Bissell and Jiung Lee today, and we're going to turn now to talking about some recent research of yours, and I want to talk about the article, Assessing COVID-19 Vaccine Misinformation Interventions Among Rural, Suburban, and Urban Residents. So let's just start kind of at a general level, um, and I don't know who want to take, take this first. Maybe Jiung, I'll, I'll ask you first. Why did you get interested in this particular problem? Yeah, um, so I have recognized the many issues um, about the COVID um, during the COVID pandemic these days. The first problem that I have seen is that a lot of misinformation was spreading on social media. Like everyone I've recognized, um, you know, misinformation has become even more serious problems, like even more serious problems compared to the other physical issues um, associated with COVID, I can say, because like a lot of misinformation really led, misled people to um, mistakenly, you know, um, believe that certain treatments are effective to prevent COVID or they try to rely on misleading, you know, prevention methods for COVID. And um, we have, as a communication scholar, we have recognized that this is a very, very serious issue. Um, and this also corresponds to what WHO said um, at the beginning of the pandemic about the infodemic term. So we totally agree with the uh, with that um, argument. And then we just you know recognize that we need to do something. We need to conduct some research about misinformation on social media about COVID. And the second issue I have recognized um, with Kim was that. Um, social media platforms have done a lot of, um, you know, great work on countering COVID-19 misinformation, but we wondered whether this misinformation interventions are effective for those who were um, kind of have a limited knowledge about uh, the information. Uh, more broadly, those who have limited knowledge about social media literacy and other stuff like health literacy as well. And we noticed that health disparities are absolutely going on about this misinformation issues. Um, so we have started to recognize the serious problems about disparities between the rural, suburban, and rural urban residents. So we were wondering whether the social media interventions that a lot of social media platforms have applied are effective across all of these populations. So we started to have a large interest in it, so that's why we conducted this study. Kim, let me bring you in on this, and I want to get a sense of the of the scale of the problem. And you researched health communication uh, throughout your career, mm -hmm. so these are kinds of issues that I, I'm assuming coming into COVID, you were not surprised that there would be misinformation in the system. Somehow, the scale of it with COVID is is bigger than you expected. Take me into your thinking about the the uh, urgency of the problem. Well, that's a great question, and I think. It health and um, 
just health issues to say over the last 10 years or over the last 20 years, the role and the presence of social media has certainly evolved. And so we're kind of at a time where we're faced with this pandemic and so many people are relying on social media for every bit of information they get. You know, I'm hearing, I heard yesterday, people are relying on TikTok to figure out what's going on in Ukraine. They're not looking at traditional news sources. So, you know, kind of the the umbrella understanding of this all is that over time, when we studied, I study health disparities, health disparities in children in rural parts of the state, even in the research that I've done in the last decade, it's, it's not been the situation that we're in right now because social media is just even more present. And if you think about things like broadband access and and, and all of that, you kind of um, introduce technological situations throughout the state. Not everybody in the state is going to have um, a television. Not everybody in the state is going to have access to news channels or cable or satellite. But most people, and the data supports this, most people do have cell phones. You may not have it at your home, but you may have it at your church. And so um, what what it's done is it's put us in this, Jiang described it very, very well, it's put us in this place where you rely what's coming through your phone more than anything else. And as Jiang mentioned, we started to see information kind of coming out from the state, recognizing that you had this big disparity between those that believed what was happening and those that thought nothing of it. Um, and there's a lot to all of that, but it's well, social media. Yeah. And, and uh, you use the term misinformation. I, I want to just sort of spend a second talking about terminology. Um, Kim, let me stay with you on this first, just about, we hear about misinformation, we hear about disinformation, we hear about conspiracy. Um, and I know it's a big tent of researchers who work everywhere, you know, from across sort of traditional disaster emergency management risk communication to communication studies, like both of you and into epidemiology. Um, how important are those distinctions or, or how do you think about those distinctions? When I think about misinformation, I sometimes see it used as um, an unwitting error made by a public official who just passes along a mistake. Uh from that all the way to, let's say, uh, take a hypothetical, a president who tells people to use a medicine which shouldn't be used in a particular instance, which seems a little bit more um, insidious. I don't know. So talk to me a little bit about terminology. Well, I think you're correct. I mean, there's been a lot of terminology thrown around, which makes it even more difficult and challenging for um, many of the residents in the state of Alabama, because it's just very confusing. And, you know, you see words or these different terms on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is you're looking at, and it just becomes overwhelming. And that's what we've heard throughout almost the last two years. It's information overload and you don't, and, and individuals don't know what sources to trust. They don't know who to trust. And so, again, it, it sort of escalates the problem um, exponentially. But, you know, mis misinformation, we're just treating it as incorrect information that, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter the source, but it's incorrect information that's being shared on these social media platforms. That's an overly simplistic way to look at it. But 
that's how we were looking at it for this study. So let me, Ji Young, bring you in if you want to comment on any part of that. And then I want to try to understand a little bit more of the kind of theoretical construct that you're working with here, particularly um, what kind of models are you working with to understand how people interact with misinformation? And there's a term in reading your paper that I was not familiar with, um, but I'm fascinated by, which is uh, cognitive elaboration, which I find to be pretty uh, interesting. I'd like to know more about. Yeah, that's a great question. So to clarify our um, study model here, um, we were interested in examining the effects of misinformation interventions. Um, in other words, um, you know, the intervention that were designed to counter misinformation, the interventions that um, makes people to rethink about the veracity of misinformation. So we have designed a two different misinformation interventions. The first one is making people to leave comments on misinformation posts. And then the second one was just adding the fact-checking level to the misinformation posts. And then the fact-checking level that we used was uh, we indicated that, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, automatically detected this misinformation as false. So we basically tested whether, you know, these two misinformation interventions may be effective, especially for rural, suburban, and urban residents, like across all populations overall. So um, to just elaborate further about the cognitive elaboration that Scott, you asked, uh, we basically wanted to, um, you know, answer the question whether having people live the leave comments about the misinformation post make people to better rethink about veracity of misinformation. Because while leaving the comments, they could probably, um, you know, uh, process the misinformation, process about the veracity of mis misinformation in a more careful and analytic way, rather than just scrolling down all the different posts. And, um, you know, we call that as a heuristic processing, which is kind of opposing term um, to the cognitive elaboration. So we were wondering whether either fact-checking label or making people to leave comments, um, either one could make people to have cognitively elaborate about the misinformation post. That's really fascinating. And Kim, let me bring you back in on this. So, um, so two different ways to, or two different kinds of interventions to think about. Of course, mm -hmm. what we all hear um, particularly anyone who writes an op-ed or, or puts anything out there in public these days, we're told, don't read the comments. Don't, right? Avoid the comments because that way lies madness. Um, but you're, you're suggesting that one of the interventions you're looking at closely then is what happens when people do leave comments. Let's talk about that a little bit first. Um, the nature of comments, how do you understand what kind of comments do the work of actually intervening versus um, stoking some kind of follow-on anxiety or even um, arguments? Well, it, it's an excellent question. And I think the answer is there's no way that we um, truly know that. It's, it's a very new area of research right now. And so that's one of the reasons we tested these two different health intervention strategies to see which one um, might be more effective or if both would be effective at all. And so, I mean, that that is the issue because you could correct the information, which would be fantastic, but then you also have kind of the stirring the pot situation. Um, so, you know, when it comes to corrective information, it really gets down to 
from like a journalistic perspective and looking at social media, it does get down to the source. And, you know, when you think about social media and the, the, um, the use of social media, you're talking about social networks. So if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook or you look at Instagram, you know, you've got your circle of friends. So if you see tweets or if you see posts and it's coming from your friends, you are more likely to trust that information. Um, and then you might add a comment. Um, and then if if you retweet it or something of that nature and other people in that social network see it, they're going to be more likely to say, oh, yeah, well, my friends all think this. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a big problem, but the empirical data on it is still um, not all completely out there yet. And that's one of the reasons we did this study. And then the artificial intelligence part of it, Jiang, just come back back to you. So that's another al- alternative intervention. What do those what does that look like? Like explain how AI actually intervenes. Yeah, so what we basically did here was, again, just use the fact-checking level with a very simplified statement. Uh, it was just a single sentence, which states that artificial intelligence detected that this misinformation post is false. So we were wondering whether just adding that AI fact-checking level, um, based on the term that we used here, uh, was effective in making people to believe the fact-checking level, in other words, making people to have a suspicious, um, you know, thinking about the misinformation post. So they were eventually not believing the misinformation post. Well, our study found that AI fact-checking level worked, but unfortunately not rural population, not to rural population, only to urban residents. So it really, you know, um, implies some kind of significant things, we can say. Because we think, and all the other social media platforms also thought that this kind of adding the fact-checking level is the most effective and cost-efficient methods to counter misinformation. But they were actually didn't think much about the health disparities issue. Um, Rural residents didn't understand the way, in a similar way that urban residents understand those kind of fact-checking levels. All right, let me just remind guests that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Kim Bissell and Jiang Lee today about new research on vaccine misinformation interventions. And so it wasn't complicated enough for you both. So then you had to bring in a geographical layer. I love this study. This is amazing work. So let's just go a little further with this, Kim. Um, is it was this a data issue? Like this is how the data was organized. And so you you approached it geographically or you just you had questions about how trust might break down geographically and that you needed to understand the trust issue or maybe there's other issues at play here well um excellent question it was very intentional actually because what we do know from data um from researchers largely out of uab um university of alabama at birmingham but also from ua is that Residents in urban and rural um, parts of the state do respond and react differently when you're talking to them about health. So with any sort of health situation, um, you have to approach residents differently. And that's not to make a broad sweeping stereotype about the demographics of those living in urban areas or suburban areas or rural areas. But what we do know is that, um, you know, they are they are different. And so when 
you are approaching individuals in rural areas and saying, well, you need to get your regular checkup or you need to do this. The, the way that you try to communicate that information to rural residents is not going to be the same way that you would communicate it to those who live in urban and suburban areas. So we kind of knew from previous research that wasn't related to vaccinations at all, but we knew from previous research that we might have differences, but we wanted to see if that was actually, that was our speculation, but we wanted to see if that was actually true because at the end of the day, you want to walk away with something that tells you how to better communicate health information to residents throughout the state. So Ji Young indicated then that you did find some differences. So both based on uh, com- comments versus AI and then based on geography. So uh, the study is complicated. I'm asking you to, ge- to kind of synthesize it for us. And I know that's hard to do, but can you tell us some of the trends that you saw? Kim, I'll start with you and then Ji Young come back to you, geographically speaking. Well, as Ji Young mentioned, I mean, what we found what we kind of expected to find with those in rural populations. And Ji-Young and I have been on several studies looking at um, information can be either corrected the way misinformation can be corrected. Um, and what we know is that it does come down to something that you mentioned, Scott, about um, who you trust. And so while it wasn't something that we were directly testing, what we do know is that in in the South and in rural parts of the South, residents will trust their minister or their preacher or their um, friends within their church group. So when you look at sort of the sources of um, where individuals get information, it differs by geography. And so what we learned from the study, and this was again tying into what others had found, was that the approach has to be different. Um, And so the corrective strategies were less effective simply because what they're looking at and the way that they're looking at it and the way that they're processing that information is not happening in the same way it happens with residents in other parts of the state. I want to ask you, Jiang, about the um, the kind of the Alabama context of this or maybe a, a sort of southern, northern context of this because um, in a state like, let's say, New Jersey, you will find, if you're looking for um, demographics related to um, race or Mm -hmm. political affiliation, you will find, it's not perfect, but you will find some pretty clear trends around um, concentration of African-Americans in more suburban and urban areas and Mm -hmm. concentration of people who are Democrats or independents in more urban or suburban areas. Mm -hmm. That would be true for a state like Pennsylvania as well, maybe true also for a state like Ohio. I don't know, you know, in Alabama, how that if there's a similar sort of demographic issue at work there, I think it's probably a strength of your study. If you can look at geography and then also that would encompass other kind of Mm -hmm. identification characteristics, which would help us understand. The reason I ask this Mm -hmm. is I think a lot of the analysis of the misinformation problem vaccines that I've read. Um, does go immediately to factors of race or po- political identification. And I'm not saying those are wrong, but you're, you've added another way to think about it here. I, I don't know if, this que- if that's a good question or not, but maybe you can help me understand this as a demographic problem. Yeah, that's a great point. And I believe that Kim can just, you know, add more, you know, um, important points because Kim have lived in Alabama for a long time compared to I did. 
Um, but based on what I know, definitely political affiliation um, and the race might affect this vaccination, like the, the way that people understand this vaccination, um, you know, issues. But in, in our study, the one thing about in terms of demographic variables that we consider here in interpreting the findings was education. So we wanted to more dig more deeper into why the rural residents couldn't understand this AI fact-checking levels compared to the urban residents. But rural resident, rural residents, um, for them, leaving comments about the misinformation posts was pretty effective. But again, the AI fact-checking label was not uh, not the effective one for rural residents. So we were wondering whether this is related to the media literacy levels or is it related to the education levels? And then the only data that we had in the study was education level. Um, when we say about the literacy, the information literacy altogether. So we conducted additional you know, analysis whether the rural suburban urban residents had a different education levels. And as we expected, rural residents had a significantly lower level of education compared to urban residents. So we can assume that um, you know, this issue, the limited understanding of the AI fact-checking level among rural residents, rural residents might be related to their lower education levels. So we have later came up with an idea that maybe the next step could be which interventions on social media might be effective for rural populations, right? Especially considering their low levels of understanding about the AI due to their low levels of education. So I think that absolutely demographic variables um, should be considered further in our future studies. Kim, I want to get you to comment on that, but I think it's, mm -hmm. I mean, just as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm thinking, that 10 years ago, if we were having this chat, we would be talking about the problem of health access in rural communities. Yeah. And we would not be talking about it as a factor of how people, uh, media literacy, I mean, maybe we should have been talking about that 10 years ago, but but what a change. And and just to also get you to comment on, on anything Jiang was saying about the demographic issues. Well, you know, in something that we had talked about earlier in the study that I did probably 10 years ago um, that got funded by NIH, I was looking at um, health disparities in children. And, and part of it came down to media literacy and health literacy. So I was going around to different schools in rural parts of the state of Alabama. And what you find, well, and I think it can, it's much broader than this, but what you find is that many people aren't media literate at all, but those especially in rural parts of the state who don't have access to health care. Um, you know, there are places in the state where you may go 50, 60 miles and you might see a gas station, maybe a fast food restaurant, but you're not going to see much else. So in the way Alabama is, um, some people just literally don't have access to health care. We don't have public transportation to speak of. If you live in a rural part of the state and um, you need to go to a hospital, I mean, you're going to have to call for an ambulance or get somebody to drive you. We don't have metro. We don't have rail lines. Right. We don't have anything along those lines. And if you if you look at kind of the bigger cities in the state, um, Huntsville, Birmingham, Montgomery, Mobile, Tuscaloosa, maybe a little bit, you are talking about places that have universities. It's where you have tech industries. And right. so it helps kind of better see the, the picture of our state in terms of 
you're more likely to get educated people living in the bigger areas and the bigger cities just because that's where many of the jobs are. So just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Kim Bissell and Jiang Lee today about new research. And I want to, um, you know, as we're closing out our conversation, I actually want to ask you about the policy implications of this work. And Jiang, let me start with you. I'd like to hear from both of you about this. So um, I know you've got more research to do from the data set, mm -hmm. but um, at this point, what kind of advice would you be willing to give um, to policymakers in the state or at federal mm -hmm. level? And I guess when I ask this question these days, I need to ask you also, um, when Twitter calls and when Facebook calls, what's your advice to them? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't, um, you know, come up with a two suggestions here, two implications from our study. The first one is related to the commenting intervention. So from our research findings about the effectiveness of commenting interventions, we would argue that um, a lot of the governments um, and other social media platforms should think about how to make people, um, you know, engage, actively engage in any of the posts that they are seeing rather than just skimming through it and just don't think about it. Because uh, once they started to engage and pay attention to it, and they started to, you know, think again and again, they would, um, you know, end up with realizing that this misinformation that I am seeing would probably be false. So cognitive elaboration, I can say, going back to the academic term, is kind of important for this misinformation intervention. The second thing is related to the AI intervention. So I would like to suggest that, um, you know, we call that as a black box AI, which means that AI, um, you know, the, the message that this is just decided by AI, this is how the AI come up with the results, right? Without explaining any other, um, you know, alternative explanation. So just providing the information that this is what AI found. So you guys should believe it. It's not the kind of ideal way for making people to engage in that interventions. So rather, I would suggest that we should come up with an explainable AI, meaning that a you know the uh, fact-checking interventions provided by AI should add further explanations how they come up with this um, finding that this misinformation post is false, and what you know based on what reasons that they found that the AI found that this misinformation post is false. So it um, to, in order to do that, more explanations about that AI fact-checking intervention is pretty much needed, especially for those who have a low education levels um, and those who are living in the rural areas. Interesting, Kim. Just to to bring you in on that, anything you wanted to you wanted to add to that? Well, I think, you know, the only thing to add at a very basic level is that we have to focus on education and we have to focus on teaching individuals to think critically. You know, that's something that's lacking all over the place. But um, if people are able to think critically about information they see on social media platforms, they at least have opportunities to say, OK, this may not be correct or I'm totally buying in or I'm not buying in. Um, from a, you know, from a the perspective in a dream world scenario, we have to meet people where they are. And so we have to understand that there's no um, one universal way to address um, misinformation in terms of corrective strategies. And we have to understand, and it's one of the reasons we did this study, uh, you can't kind of helicopter in 
to right. um, these rural parts of the state and say, all right, here's what we're going to do and helicopter out. You really have to go in and you have to understand um, who you're working with and what what types of information and the way that we are, we're sharing it and telling it is going to be the most beneficial. Are there researchers who would be your peers working inside Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or are they... I'm trying to find out like who else is doing this this work because you know we did see some of these uh, Twitter made some adjustments um, they deplatformed some people but they also mm -hmm. made some adjustments in, suggesting would you like to read the article before you pass it on mm -hmm. for example is this research mostly being generated in in universities uh, Kim or is it actually happening inside the social media companies too or do you know I mean I can only speculate to imagine it's going on you know from the industry side as well we may not know about it but yeah right um, we have right you know there. we've got a couple of um, graduates and people that we know who are working in the industry conducting this type of research um but what you hear about what you'll learn about more is going to come from the academic side and it's okay. just slower, slower to get out there I think this is life-saving research, and, and I'm not sure I would have thought that before this pandemic, but what we've seen clearly in terms of vaccination rates across different states and then what that's meant, particularly through the Delta and Omicron waves, is that people um, um, people have gotten sick who didn't need to. And so I'm in the, I'm in the yeah, I'm, I'm in the uh, opinion box right now, but I just want to I just want to thank you for this work, and and I hope other people will read it closely and will get more funding for this because I think this is really uh, this is the kind of life saving work that we're seeing in in COVID that we need a lot more of before the next pandemic comes forward. Um, anything we didn't get to that we wanted that you wanted to mention, Jiang or or Kim? I think it's, it was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And I just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and we were talking about new research assessing COVID-19 vaccine misinformation interventions among rural, suburban, and urban residents. And this is by Kim Bissell and Jiyoung Lee at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you um, in the coming months. So thanks for sharing this work. Let me just remind folks also that uh, this Big day on COVID calls. I had Kathleen Tierney in the previous hour and Kim and Jiyoung now, and I have Samantha Montano coming up in just 10 minutes. So please do check out my live conversation with the author of Disasterology, Samantha Montano. That'll start at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Jiyoung and Kim, thanks so much for being with me today on COVID calls. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time.